Hi there, and welcome to the LGBTQ plus STEMcast, a podcast where we interview LGBTQ plus scientists from different STEM fields from all over the world. I'm your host, Annabelle Gong, and in today's episode, we will be chatting with Ramsey Johnson, the founder of OutBio and the vice president of operations at Phoenix Tissue Repair. Join us in today's episode as we talk all about OutBio and being authentically yourself in the workplace. Enjoy. Hi, Ramsey. Welcome. Hello to the stem cast how are you today i'm great finally getting some nice weather so oh wonderful yes always nice when it warms up a little bit you know it's been pretty warm here in california i don't know if the rest of the country's the same or not we've had our our first like 80 degree day so it's oh uh, we're moving in the right direction so Lovely, lovely, lovely. Yeah, so how about you give us a brief introduction about yourself? Sure. So I have been in the clinical research profession in one way, shape, or form for, I just updated my CV yesterday, so I can officially say it's been about 25 years. I'm currently the vice president of operations for a little biotech called Phoenix Tissue Repair. We have a recombinant collagen 7 product for a rare skin disorder called epidermolysis bullosa, and I'm primarily responsible for the running of our clinical trials and also some regulatory operations, sort of interactions with the agency and pulling submissions together and, uh, and things like that. That is sort of my day job. And then in all my copious free time, I'm also founder and president of an organization called OutBio, which is a nonprofit for LGBTQ plus individuals that work in life sciences, but more on that later. Yes, definitely more on that later. So yeah, it seems like you had had a very fruitful career so far. So how did you get to where you are today? Like what kind of fueled your career path? I guess the easiest answer is, you know, sort of a happy accident. But um, I, like so many others that I sort of went through my undergrad with, was a biology slash pre-med major with aspirations of going to medical school, you know, 25 plus years ago. But sort of finished my undergrad with a degree in in biology and and really wasn't really sure what to do with it at that point. You know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go on to medical school. I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue my education. So it was really just kind of floundering. You know, I happened to be working in a a clinical chemistry lab in a local hospital for uh, about a year or so and really just stumbled upon clinical research. So I went to an open house for a company that is still around actually called Parkcell. They are a contract research organization, um, so they sort of get contracted by biotechs and pharmas to run their clinical trial programs for them, and really just kind of stumbled into a very entry-level position with them crunching data, essentially, um, you know, managing data from clinical sites, and have just sort of worked my way up from there. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have worked with some really great, smart people over the years that, you know, I've been able to sort of parlay those relationships into, you know, roles of increasing responsibility and have really just been very fortunate to have worked with some great folks at some great companies. But yeah, it it was really an accident. You know, I kind of stumbled upon clinical research and have been in the industry ever since. Wow. That's quite the happy accident indeed. So in terms of like debating between going 
to med school, not going to med school? What was kind of your thought process with that? It was a very practical decision for me in the beginning. And a lot of it was sort of financially based. You know, I had sort of financed my undergrad by myself and, you know, wasn't sure I wanted to continue to put myself in a position where I was just going to be building up more and more debt. And to be completely honest, even the application process for medical school at the time, you know, I was funding it myself and you know, was struggling even to come up with application fees for sort of post undergrad programs. But I think, you know, what I found once I started in clinical research was that, you know, it was equally rewarding to me. You know, I think that as I mentioned before, was really fortunate to work with some really great companies on some really great programs. And, you know, I think that in the end was the reward for me and was the reason I kind of stuck with clinical research. I mean, there's so much that's sort of interesting about it. First and foremost, it's the patients, especially in sort of the niche area that I have kind of carved for myself, especially over the course of the last 10 years in rare genetic diseases. You know, I've met some incredible patients and some patient organizations and have had been really fortunate to get to know some of those folks really, really well. And those patients, especially the ones with rare genetic diseases, are so incredible and they're so courageous and so strong that, you know, that was rewarding to me from the very beginning. Um, I think the collaborative kind of nature of clinical research was also rewarding to me. You know, I, I've worked on some incredible teams and have worked with some really, really smart and interesting people. And, you know, I think that in sort of combination with the patients and then also just being like really cool science, you know, some of the programs that I've worked on have been so interesting that I found, you know, that I really sort of stopped thinking about medical school once I got into clinical research. There was so much opportunity and so much room for advancement and room for growth within clinical research that, you know, I almost completely forgot that I was even interested in medical school after a couple of years. Well, I'm glad that you were able to find your path and get to where you are now. So in your current job, I'm not really too familiar with industry work. So could you maybe detail what you do maybe in like a typical day when we're not virtual or stuff? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, there is no typical day for me, um, <laughs> especially when I have active clinical trials. So if we're actively enrolling patients into a clinical study, you know, my day could revolve around sort of troubleshooting with the sites that are enrolling patients, talking to them about who potentially qualifies to be included in a clinical trial, who meets or doesn't meet um, inclusion or exclusion criteria, you know, potentially someone could have had a, a, an adverse reaction or some other kind of an event while they were on study. And that lends itself to a whole you know, host of activities around getting that documented and reported to the agency, uh, the FDA rather, and to the other sites if needed. You know, I primarily work with very small kind of startup companies. And as such, we don't have a ton of internal resources. So we use lots of vendors to run our clinical programs. And so you know, a lot of my day is spent interacting with my counterparts at clinical research organizations and visiting nurse agencies and clinical trial participant travel agencies. And I mean, there's any number of vendors that I'm interacting with on a daily basis. So it's a lot of that. You know, if we're in the midst of an FDA submission, say we're filing an IND, which is 
essentially an application by where we ask the agency for the FDA for permission to start using our product in humans. There's a lot of writing involved in sort of pulling together of information from previous preclinical studies or CMC activities. So, you know, it's, it's very different. Uh, it really just depends on kind of where we are in the clinical development process at any given time. So that's one of the things I love about being in clinical research is you never kind of know what you're going to be walking into on a daily basis. And especially with small startup companies, I mean, you get to wear a lot of different hats. So, you know, I never would have gotten half of the experience that I have had had I not been working for, you know, very small startup companies where we just did not have the internal resources uh, to go around. And so you sort of have to step up to the plate and do things that are outside of your comfort zone because, you know, there's no one else to do them. Yeah, that's all super cool and very interesting that you're doing something different every day. I think that's one of the most appealing things to me about research specifically is this idea of like, you never really know what you're going to find. You'll never really know what you're going to do kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, especially working, like I said, with, with startups, I mean, before you even start your clinical trial, there's things that need to be done that you, you, you don't even really think about until you're actually sort of struck with the idea that, oh, you know, we don't have any standard operating procedures. So, you know, we need to write down processes for consenting patients and for reporting adverse events and product complaints and, and things like that. So, you know, you get to be involved in so many different aspects of the industry, especially when you are fortunate enough to work for a startup. It's not for everybody. It's a lot of work and um, there are long hours and long days, but, you know, it's so rewarding. And um, like I said, just you get to work on so many different aspects of um, the, the industry all at once. And it gives you a lot of room to kind of like shape how you want to do your job, I guess, too, since it's a startup and so a lot of room for flexibility and such. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, this is your day job, um, as you said, and um, on your free time, whatever you have of it, you um, you work on and you founded OutBio, which right. it seems like a really awesome organization. Um, so yeah, what kind of inspired you to start OutBio? Um, selfish things. <laughs> I guess those are you know, always the best um, reasons to do things. Uh, so I, this was six years ago, I guess, uh, April of 2015 is um, sort of when OutBio was born. Um, and I was at a company, uh, another company um, at the time. And unfortunately, we had not seen sort of the clinical benefit that we had hoped we would with the product. Um, and we were a small company, you know, four, five, six people, but we had already started kind of downsizing um, just because we knew that uh, we were going to be wrapping up um, that program. And so I knew by the end of 2015, I was probably going to be looking for my next role and was just thinking about ways to network and meet people and start putting my feelers out for other jobs. And then, you know, just started thinking, you know, I personally knew four or five men that identified as gay that happened to work in the life sciences. And they were kind of, you know, all over the place. They were MDs, there were some folks in operations, some people that worked in, you know, like marketing communications or finance or whatever, but happened to work for life sciences. And I thought, well, if I know four or five people, then they each probably know four or five people. And, you know, there's party. 
And I knew that there were other of these types of meetup groups in other agencies, other, other industries. Um, you know, I had heard there was like an out in tech organization and there was, you know, an LGBTQ focused organization in, in the finance industry. Um, and then I also knew that there were sort of these meetup groups in the life sciences, but they weren't, they didn't have an LGBTQ focus. Um, like in Boston, I think, I, I think it's still around actually, there's a, um, a biotech Tuesdays group. So it's like a, you know, group of people that meet, I think it's like the first Tuesday of every month or the last Tuesday of every month or something um, to network and, and um, meet new people. So I, you know, I just thought like, I'll do an experiment basically. Um, you know, I, I sent an email to the four or five people I knew and said, I'll host, you know, whatever, what we didn't even have a name at the time. It was the LGBTQ drug development meetup group. <laughs> exactly roll off the tongue and said, you know, I'll host the first one at the company I was at at the time. You know, I got some beer and wine and some, you know, cheap cheese and crackers and, you know, let's just see what we get. And, um, you know, I think that first one, we probably had 10 or 11 people um, that showed up. And honestly, I had not even given a second thought to, you know, what would become of it and what I would do next. Um, but within days of having that first one, uh, someone that I met at that event um, that had just happened to move to the Boston area from Seattle uh, to work at a local um, uh, biotech said, you know, emailed me and said, that was amazing. We want to do another, we want to do one. We want to host one. And he was at Bluebird Bio at the time. And so he basically said, if you send out the invites and kind of keep track of who's going to come, we will provide the venue. We'll do it, you know, in a conference room at Bluebird and we'll get a caterer and we'll have an open bar and we'll just do a, you know, sort of meet and greet. Um, so that was the next one. And it do probably doubled in size. It was like 20 or 30 people that showed up. Wow. Um, and then it just, it really just took off from there. I mean, Pfizer said the same thing. We want to host one, exact same format. And then Takeda wanted to host one, exact same format. And then, so I really went from, I was probably doing them like once a quarter uh, for the rest of 2015 into 2016. And very quickly just started doing them once a month because you know there was so much interest from sponsors in the Boston and Cambridge area that wanted to host an event. And you know, I started hearing a lot of sort of the same things, which were, you know, we've set aside money for diversity and inclusion events and no one's doing anything with it. And if you already have the mailing list, then you know, this is like low-hanging fruit, right? Like you can invite all these people that work in life sciences and have them to our corporate venue and we'll, we'll pay for the caterer and the, the, bar, the bar. And, um, and it's, you know, a way of showing support for the community. Yeah. And so we really operated that way, you know, for the first year or so, um, maybe even longer first two years. Um, and then, you know, I think we just got to a certain size, like, you know, our membership, our, our distribution list got to, you know, four, 500, 600 people. Wow. Um, and I just started thinking, you know, we have this captive audience once a month. Um, we really should be doing something more than just, you know, a mix and mingle and giving people free drinks. And, um, you know, we should be offering some content. And so that was sort of the next evolution about bio is we really just started 
you know, pushing a little bit the sponsors that wanted to host to offer some content at the beginning of the event. Um, so, you know, sometimes they invite a speaker, sometimes they have, you know, somebody from their C-suite kind of talk about a personal anecdote, someone that they knew um, and their coming out story or, you know, something personal like that. Sometimes they want to present on, you know, an ERG, an employee resource group um, that they've just rolled out or some other diversity and inclusion initi initiative that they've just started, or maybe they partner with another nonprofit, you know, a, a scholarship fund or, or something that focuses on the LGBTQ community. So that sort of um, was sort of the next step is now our events, well, at least before COVID, there was always some sort of content, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the sponsor company presenting on a chosen topic. Then we typically do some sort of a structured networking activity just to get people kind of mingling and interacting. That was a piece of feedback we got when we did our first survey back in, it was probably 2018, 2019 now, is that some people were finding it difficult to meet new people at our events that, you know, they were walking into the, the room and people would already be sort of in these small clusters of you know, mm. people that they used to work with or some people they used to, you know, they went to grad school with and they, you know, new people were finding it hard to meet folks. So we try and now and do some sort of a structured networking activity. You know, we give a lot of leeway and latitude to the companies that are sponsoring. So we, get, we let them, you know, pick the content. We let them pick the networking activity. We really let them take the lead on the event and you know i and the rest of the folks at outbio really just handle the sort of behind the scenes stuff i mean the the sending invites and tracking who's attending and you know brainstorming with the sponsors when they need it in terms of you know what kind of content they want to present and what kind of activity they want to do but that's kind of you know where we were pre-covid yeah that's a very very interesting story. And I love that it just grew. I mean, that just means that there was prior interest or just yeah. interest in general, which is so awesome. Yeah. And that's what we say now, you know, there, there had to have been a reason um, that there was so much interest and in that we got so big so quickly. I mean, obviously we were, we filled up some kind of a void that existed. There was obviously a space for, you know, an LGBT support organization within the life sciences, certainly in the Boston, Cambridge area. And, you know, I, we, we speculate about why that is, you know, why there's so many of us in the Boston, Cambridge area. But yeah, you know, we think that we definitely filled a gap that existed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Outbio seems like it was founded just around the same time that, you know, LGBTQ plus marriages were legalized federally, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So obviously that was a huge turning point for LGBTQ visibility in yeah. a lot of spaces. So how did LGBTQ plus folks find each other within like industries before then? Yeah, I don't know that they did. I mean, we would hear sort of anecdotally from our events, people walking into the room and saying, oh, wow, you know, they, they see somebody that they, they know works for their company on a different floor but I had no idea that they, you know, identified as LGBTQ or were an ally, uh, which we also welcome at our events. So, you know, I'm not sure that they were finding each other unless they had some prior connection, you know, went 
to grad school together or, you know, were interns together somewhere or ran into each other, you know, at a club or a bar somewhere in Boston and recognized, you know, each other from industry. But, you know, I don't think there was any sort of formal way that people were finding each other prior to OutBio, which I think is why, you know, another reason why we, you know, probably became so large so quickly and our events started becoming so popular is, you know, it was a way for other LGBTQ people to find each other in the industry. I mean, that's sort of our tagline that we tell people is when you walk in one of our events, you know, right off the bat, you're going to have at least two things in common with everybody in that room. You're all LGBTQ or an ally, and you all work in one way, shape or form in the life sciences. And so, you know, I think it's part of the appeal of OutBio, I think, to the community. And now like with COVID hitting and everything, obviously we're experiencing a different kind of isolation from folks who identify similarly to us. So what were you working on during COVID in relation to OutBio and are those affecting any future plans that you may have for the organization? Yeah, in, uh, you know, some good ways, some bad ways. So obviously we've had to put a, um, a, a pause on all of our in-person events. So we haven't done an in-person event since February of, of 2020. And that was really what people had come to sort of think about bio as was a networking organization. In some ways it's been nice for us to take up a step back from that because we really do see ourselves as much more than just a networking organization and we want others to see us that way as well. So in some ways it's been nice to kind of take a step back from in-person events. We are absolutely going to get back to in-person events um, and can't wait to do that hopefully this fall and uh, sometime very soon I can make an announcement about our first uh, in-person event in almost a year and a half. We also haven't wanted to do virtual events just for the sake of doing them. You know, I think, again, anecdotally, we just started hearing, you know, people were kind of sick of this forced Zoom networking and, you know, these Zoom happy hours. And also, you know, people spend their entire day on Zoom or WebEx. And the last thing they want to do at five o'clock is get on another video call. So we've been pretty selective about the virtual events we've done. We've done, I, th I think, four or five now at this point in uh, since February of, of uh, 2020, you know, we did something in collaboration with PFLAG that Moderna hosted. We did a panel with Al Nylum, I believe, um, of uh, with a sort of focus on um, going from bench science into management. So for people that wanted to make that leap of being a scientist in the lab to a more strategic role uh, and sort of, you know, how how people have done that um, in the past. So uh, we've done that. We did an event um, focused on sort of professional and career coaching. And so we've tried to be you know, selective about the events that we've done uh, virtually. You know, the other thing that has been nice because we've had this year and a half to think about some of the other things that we would like to do other than our events. And so you know, very soon we're going to be rolling out a structured mentor program. So, you know, folks that are brand new to industry, or maybe they're finishing up their PhD and they want to get into industry, or maybe they're a MD in the clinic and they want to get into industry, you know, pairing them with someone that is in industry and is a bit more seasoned, um, that hopefully has had a similar path to the one that the mentee is 
striving for. So we've been working on that, putting together best practices, soliciting uh, volunteers from our members, people that both want to be a mentor and want to be a mentee. And so we're just, we're very, very close to um, rolling that out. I think in the next couple of weeks, we'll be um, sending out the formal invitations with, um, you know, waivers for folks to sign and copies of the best practices, and then starting to do the matching of the mentor um, and mentee and getting those um, folks introduced. So that's one thing that we've been working on um, during this break from in-person events. We've also done quite a bit of brainstorming about setting up some kind of a scholarship fund for LGBTQ identifying kids that want to study a STEM field. And so we're a bit ways off from rolling anything like that out, but it's been nice to, you know, to be able to put a pause on some of the other things and, and sort of brainstorm how we would like that scholarship fund to look and how we're going to raise money for it and, you know, who we're going to target and, and just sort of filling in the blanks and, and, um, fitting the pieces together on what a potential uh, scholarship fund could look like. Um, the other major thing we did um, during COVID is we finalized the process of officially becoming a nonprofit. So we did that last year. So that was nice as well to have kind of a break from planning the events and be able to focus on, you know, really just the paperwork and the sort of administrative challenges of becoming a 501c3 charitable uh, organization. And it was about a year and a half that it took us to sort of complete the entire process and check all the boxes. So, you know, we were able to do that uh, last year. So that's really been the focus, you know, for the last year and a half during this, these weird, this weird period in everyone's lives. You know, we've had plenty to, to keep us busy and it was sort of refreshing in some ways to be able to focus on some of those things um, and not so much on the in-person events. That's awesome that you have been able to focus on so many other things that, I mean, obviously would have been gotten done eventually, but yeah. now you have like the time to commit to yeah. them. And, exactly. And like I said, you know, it's um, Outbio is something that we, um, me and, and the folks that are on my board of directors all do sort of in our spare time um, pro bono. So it, you know, it's been um, nice to sort of take the events off the table, be able to focus on our day jobs and then doing some of the, these other things for out bio, you know, when we can in our free time. So. Yeah. So I also noticed, I mean, you've had these really huge companies, like you said, with these extra like diversity funds and such using out bios like contact lists as ways to uh, create networks and stuff. So it seems like out bio gives both professionals who identify as LGBTQ and companies to interact and for these members to be their authentic selves. So how might that be advantageous for both the employees yeah. and the employers? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's obvious. So the advantages are obvious to the employees, right? Anytime you can be your truest, most authentic self, when you go to work every day, you know, you're going to be happier, you're going to be more productive in the work that you do on a daily basis. I mean, it's just better for you, um, sort of you, plural, you collective all around, if you can if you can be your most authentic self every day. I think the thing people don't always think about, or at least hadn't historically, I think they're starting to think about it more and more, 
are the advantages to employers, to you know, advantages to them for promoting that kind of atmosphere. Um, so if you, if you show your LGBTQ plus employees that they are supported and you encourage them to be their truest, most authentic self when they are at work every day, they are going to be more loyal, more productive, and they're going to stay with that company longer. And they're probably going to bring their friends with them. So, you know, I think that as a community, LGBTQ folks do their homework. I mean, they notice when a company is supportive of our community and when they are sort of promoting the kind of environment that allows you to be your, your truest, most authentic self every day. And we're going to congregate and gather toward those companies. And so, and I think companies are starting to recognize that. I mean, just in the six years that OutBio has been around, I've seen such huge growth in employee resource groups and other diversity and inclusion uh, initiatives at life science companies. You know, some of the larger ones specifically have pride organizations or LGBTQ you know, organizations within their companies that are you know, obviously specifically geared toward our community. So I think companies are starting to recognize it and they're starting to do the things that they need to do to, to sort of show that they are supportive um, of the community in general. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely some sort of positive light to this all, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, do you have any experiences where you maybe experience something like this, whether that be good or, yeah. or not so good? You know, I don't, I don't have any horror stories, thankfully. Thank um, God. <laughs> yeah, about, you know, some opportunity that I missed or some promotion I was passed over for. I mean, you know, I have sort of a lot of small examples of sort of unconscious bias or little comments people have made that I'm sure, or at least I hope that they didn't really mean anything by, but Obviously, I, I took note of it and noticed it and was offended and did that sort of quietly. <laughs> and, and some examples not so quietly. I mean, I, there have been examples of people using inappropriate language or terms for things. And, you know, I sort of thought, well, if I don't tell them that that was an inappropriate term to use, then they're never going to know it and they're just going to keep saying it. So there have there have been some of those examples where I've taken it as sort of a teaching opportunity where you know, I can tell someone you really shouldn't use that term anymore. It's not appropriate, it's offensive, that sort of thing. So there've been some examples of that. I think when I first came out, God, how long has it been? I don't even know, Before it was when I was 29, <laughs> so long time ago, <laughs> almost 20 years. You know, I, I was at a crossroads at that point. And, you know, I did kind of start when I first came out, keeping that part of my life sort of to myself. and you know, on the down low and not really talking to people about my personal life. But what I found very, very quickly is that doing that is exhausting. So when someone asks you what you did over the weekend or what you did last night, and you have to think about every single thing that comes out of your mouth and strip the pronouns of everything, uh, you know, not say I went on a date with him, you know, it just, it, it is so exhausting. And you find that you're not giving 100% of yourself to your job when you're constantly worried about outing yourself in your everyday life. And so 
that was a decision I made very quickly is that I just was not going to do that anymore. And I decided like most things that are uncomfortable to me to rip it off like a bandaid. It's just sort of my reaction um, when I'm uncomfortable is just to get it all over with at once. And I just told everybody within my work life that I was out um, and that I was gay and uh, you know, to made sure I told a few people that I, I knew were part of the gossip mill, the rumor mill. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, before you know it, it just, just as planned the entire, the entire company knew, but it's an ongoing thing. I mean, I feel like every time I start a new job or start a new role, it's like, I'm outing myself all over again. I always have to make sure that I say something, you know, very quickly about my husband or my partner or my boyfriend, just so that people know that I'm gay, because, you know, it's always awkward when someone asks me about my wife, what is, what does your wife do? You know, it's like, it's awkward for me. It's awkward for them when I have to say, well, I don't have a wife. I have a husband. So it's just easier all around. If I beat everybody to the punch and say, make sure I, I make it known from the very beginning that I'm gay, you know, so it's, it's a constant, it's a constant struggle. Um, I'm sure anybody that has ever identified as LGBTQ knows what I'm what I'm talking about. It's sort of you're you're constantly having to to out yourself um, on a regular basis. Thanks for sharing. That was, yeah, that was really interesting. And um, I mean, yeah, it's a constant coming out for right. anyone really, yeah. which kind of it really sucks, especially if you're constantly changing positions or yeah. I mean, it's positions. just you know we're traditional heterosexual cisgendered people don't have to do that, right? Like they don't have, they yeah. always just assume everyone knows that, you know, you have an opposite sex partner. If you're a man, you're married to a woman. If you're a, a woman, you're married to a man. It's just not even something that is in their everyday thought. And it's for, for people that identify as LGBTQ plus, it's always something, you know, we think about. I mean, every time you meet someone new, there is always something in the back of your head where you think, you know, you wonder, well, do they think I'm straight? Do they think I'm, you know, cisgendered? Do they, whatever it is. And you worry, is this going to come up in conversation and is it going to be awkward? Yeah, unfortunately, that's the reality for most folks now, but it seems like it's on the upward trend, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it gets easier and easier all the time, right? And it, you know, sometimes I take for granted that I live in a very liberal state in a very in a very liberal city. Um, you know, I, I, I'm almost at the point where I don't even really think about it anymore. I have to remind myself that there are people that live in other parts of our country and in other countries and other parts of the world that have it much more difficult uh, and a much harder time with these things than than I do. Yeah, for sure. Same goes for me living in California. And yeah. yeah, like you said, there are a lot of companies who are working on ways to make their workplaces more inclusive. So do you have any like personal ideas as to ways that companies can work to be more inclusive of LGBTQ plus folks? I mean, I always, I always tell companies that ask this it's the little things, right? It's, I mean, and these are the things that we as a community notice. I mean, I notice when a company changes their logo colors for June. You know, I notice when a company marches in a parade. I notice when a company that I work for sends out an email on, you know, like a certain day of remembrance, whatever that is, you know, if it's the month of June or if it's another 
you know, day that uh, as a community, we try and commemorate. I notice, and I know others, when companies sponsor events um, or other companies like OutBio. And so I think, you know, as a community, we notice these things and we do our homework. So if I or if a lot of people I know in the community are applying for a job or looking at a company, you know, they're doing their homework. They're looking to see, you know, what other organizations are they affiliated with on LinkedIn? You know, have they ever been in the news for sponsoring um, some kind of a, a pride event? Have they ever marched in the pride parade? So, you know, I don't think they don't have to be, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. Like they don't, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think you can start with very small, minor things uh, that, that the community will definitely take notice and sit up and, and they'll remember. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's only growing more and more. And hopefully those smaller, you know, kind of aesthetic changes become applied in the workplace as well in terms of how LGBTQ plus folks get treated in, yeah. in the office and stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, having a gender neutral bathroom. I mean, it's like, it's such a small thing, but you know, people notice that when they're in the offices, visitors will notice it. Um, and certainly employees that go to work there will will notice it. Um, and so, yeah, again, it's, you know, it, it's, you don't have to recreate the wheel. It's, it's all the stuff that you, you hear about uh, on a daily basis on the news. Those are the things that, that you can do to show that you support the community. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, as we're closing our conversation for today, do you have any final thoughts, any social media you would like to plug, especially for OutBio? First of all, is Happy Pride. Happy Pride, um, yes. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, if anyone is interested in OutBio, they can do a couple of things. They can email um, us directly at outbioboston at gmail.com and ask to be added to the distribution list. Um, they can also visit our uh, website, um, which is just outbio.org, www.outbio.org. We have social media presence as well on um, Twitter and, and Facebook and, and LinkedIn. And yeah, we're, we're not just Boston, Cambridge, especially now that we're doing a lot more virtual events. So um, if anyone's listening to this that isn't based uh, in New England and are interested, um, absolutely feel free to, to contact me. Um, I'm also interested in, in speaking with folks that would be, uh, that are interested in potentially starting an OutBio chapter in locations other than, than Boston and Cambridge. We, we now have our, our first OutBio chapter in the UK. So if anyone is interested in that, also reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Ramsey. I learned so much today and I think that what you're doing is super awesome and super cool. Great. Thanks for having me. And once again, folks, that was Ramsey Johnson. Thank you, Ramsey, for speaking with me, and thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQ STEMcast, and you can support us financially on our coffee and our Patreon. The links to all of these will be in our link tree at linktr.ee slash LGBTQ STEMcast. Once again, I want to wish everyone a happy Pride, and we will see you on the STEMcast soon. <laughs>